Well, thanks for being here this morning. Thank you for participating with us in worship and joining collectively together as a body that comes together that's been impacted by the grace of God and to proclaim his excellencies of who he is. And, and we get to continue that now as we dive into his word. If you're wondering where Owen is, he is one of the team members, him and Amanda. Uh, and I believe Austin, as, as well as the several other people you see on the front of your bullets, are in Calgary this morning. And so uh, I am preaching this morning, and we're going to be continuing in Colossians. We've been in Colossians for a while now, uh, for several weeks. And so we'll be in chapter 2, picking up where Jeff uh, left off last week. And so uh, we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. Before we get there, though, I, I, thinking about this message this morning, thinking about Paul and his heart for the Colossians, I think there are many seasons, there's many circumstances in our life that position us to feel the depth and the weight of responsibility. The depth and the weight of responsibility. For some of you soon-to-be college freshmen, if there happen to be any in the room, you're feeling a new sense of responsibility as you move out of the house for the first time. Uh, Many of you remember the first car you bought. Maybe you remember the first full-time job you got hired for. Uh, Or maybe, hopefully you remember this, when you said, I do, to your sweetheart. All of these things bring a sense, a, a new heightened level of responsibility that we can feel from time to time. Today, personally, I, I, to be honest with you, feel an intense weight of responsibility as I stand here and declare the truth. I, my heart is racing right now. And that's just, it never surprises me as many times as I get to do this. Um, that is a, a responsibility that, I, that I, I deal with and wrestle with. And there are other responsibilities that we all uh, deal with and, and work through. And, and another one that I uh, remember and, and recall and, and still continue to have to this day is when I was first known as Daddy. And, and if you can remember, you've been there, you remember taking your kid home from the hospital. I remember bringing Nathan home from the hospital. Uh, just feeling the enormous pressure to keep this kid alive. You know, just like, am I going to screw something up? Am I going to mess it up? And the baby feels so fragile. He, he's just so small and just, but so wonderful. And combining all of that with the sense of inadequacy I had as a parent, but yet combining that with this overwhelming sense of concern I had for him. And, and I can say with all honesty, and I would assume the rest of you as parents would feel this as well, that that doesn't go away. That, that sense of responsibility Continues. I watch some of you parents with much more experience, even some of you parents whose kids have left the house and the conversations I have with you. I'm getting a sense that this depth of responsibility that I have for my sons is not going away. That that's, that's, it's always going to be there. It's always going to exist. And I think if we can think about those particular things, even if you're not a parent here this morning, you in a sense can understand that, that overwhelming sense of responsibility that we have for those underneath us. And I think this gives us a little bit of insight into Paul's mindset for the Colossians. He feels the weight of responsibility for their spiritual well-being. He, he wants them to know and embrace the truth of who God is. And he wants them to embrace it even if it costs him, even if it comes as a, as a sacrifice to him, as we looked last week in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this. says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. He, it was costing him. His concern, his responsibility for the Colossians brought about sacrifice for him. 
Paul wanted to be clear and thorough in his communication to the Colossians about who they were placing their faith in. Um, as we walked through Colossians 1, there were several things that Owen shared with us and taught us from the scriptures. One of those main things that we focused on was uh, the endurance of the faith, what it means to continue and to, to press on. And um, he, he talked about that, but he also talked about the decisive words of, of, of Paul of who Jesus is, that he was ultimate, that he was superior over all things, that he was sufficient in every way, especially when it comes to our reconciliation with God. And so the problems that, that we're beginning to see as we keep walking through Colossians, the problems that threaten the Colossians stemmed from some wrong thinking about who Jesus was. And, and we'll be getting into that here in the next couple weeks, but, but generally there was false teaching promoting that Jesus wasn't enough, that there were add-ons, that there were improvements that needed to be embraced for salvation, if anything, to achieve a higher level of, of spirituality. And so like any parent wanting to protect his children, which we can understand, uh, Paul had big issues with this false gospel that was attacking the Colossians. And he wanted to warn them to endure in the truth, to stay the course. He wanted them to trust that in Christ alone are all the treasures of wisdom and full assurance of knowing Jesus and what he has done was really meant to be fully enjoyed, that there was nothing else they needed. There wasn't an, an element they were missing. There wasn't a T they needed to cross or an I that needed to be dot, but they, they could have full assurance of knowing who Christ was and what he has done. And as I just had mentioned, the other uh, topic that Owen walked us through in Colossians 1 was this idea of, of enduring in the truth, enduring in the faith. And as Christ followers, we really have no option but to endure. That is our only alternative as we follow Christ. But the hope is, is that in Christ, we will endure. I mean, we're assured of this in Philippians 1.6 that he tells us that he is committed, God is committed to finish what he has started. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, he's also the author and perfecter of our faith. And so again, this, this gives us hope because here's, here's the reality this morning. Because we follow Christ does not eliminate trials and difficulty from our life. If anything, it's guaranteed that we will experience them. We, we see in Acts 14.22, Paul and Barnabas are ministering to the disciples of, of Lystra, Iconium, and, and Antioch, and, and the things that he is encouraging them with in, in Acts 14 is to continue in the faith, which is another way of saying to endure, to, to finish the faith. And so he also goes on to remind them in that passage, though, that says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So by definition, if endurance is required of us to follow Jesus, then we can be sure that we will follow Jesus through difficult, difficulty. We will follow Jesus through hard things, and it will be things that go beyond just the ordinary life struggles, but struggles in particular that will test our faith in him. And, and no doubt, this will require us to fight it will require us to endure in the truth. And like the Colossians, we are in hard times. And if we have received Christ Jesus as Lord, like the Colossians, then we are targets. Jeff spoke of this last week, that the, that the false teaching, the things that are seeking to take us captive are deliberate. It is not a passive thing. We are, we are targeted 
And he says there in Colossians 2.8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. You think of that word captive. It is a term that is associated with war. To be captive is, is to be associated with war. And so that's exactly what we're in. Every single moment of every day is a war for those who follow Christ. And like the Colossians, we do walk in the midst of danger. But in the, in the midst of that danger, our hope lies obviously not in ourselves. It is, is not upon us to, to walk faithfully in the midst of of that danger, nor is it in trying to over-evaluate the opposition, in trying to evaluate its attacks. If you see where Paul is going with this all through Colossians, his strategy for them to resist being taken captive by these false ideas about who Jesus is, is in daily remembering who the real Jesus is. It's that same old illustration I'm sure you've heard before. If you deal with money, you work in a bank or whatnot, and you're, you're trying to always make sure what you see is the real thing, you don't spend your time investing looking at all of the counterfeits. You just know the real thing really well. And that's what Paul is doing here with the Colossians. He wants them to, to be saturated in who Christ is. And this is why he says in Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. And, and here's the reality, church, is we can never, 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 never grow tired of hearing about the truth of Jesus' superiority, about his sufficiency for salvation in him, about his victory on the cross and his resurrection. We can never grow bored from that. We can never get to a point where we move beyond the cross to other things. The cross is it. Christ is it. That is where we reside. That is what we hope in. Paul assures us that the nature of God, he communicates this to us in, in verse 9 and 10 of Colossians 2, what Jeff looked at last week, but he assures us that the nature of God dwelt fully in Christ, not just some of it, but all of it. Jesus was God in the flesh, and if we are in Christ, then we have his fullness in us. We have all we need in him. There are no additions. There are no improvements. There isn't something else you should look for. All you have, all you need is found in Christ. And Paul will get to these, again, these additions and improvements later in the chapter, as will Owen when he returns next week. But for now, again, Paul is concerned that the Colossians know with full assurance that Christ was inhabited with the fullness of God, and therefore they had all they needed in him. That was it. There was nothing else to look for. In him we are complete. And so knowing this, this truth that Paul continues to pound into the, the minds and hearts of the Colossians as well as in us. The, knowing this is key to walking faithfully in Christ when there is war all around us and when your faith in Christ is the target. What is key to walking faithfully in Christ is knowing the full assurance of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And so this morning, as we move forward in our study of Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15, Paul is going to outline for us why our completeness in Christ is sure, why it is a, a, a thing we can hope in. Um, and so we are complete in Christ, by Christ alone, because of several things that we're going to see in the passages this morning. And so the first thing, if you look in your, your Bibles at verses 11 and 12, we'll read that together. I believe it's on the screen behind me, but it says this in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We are complete in Christ by Christ alone because the old are made new. And so the first thing that we have to tackle from verses 11 and 12 is this thing called circumcision. And I'm going to assume I don't have to address the physical tangibles of what the act of circumcision is. Correct? Good. Let's move to the biblical implications. And we find these in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. I I think these will be on the screen for you to follow along. Genesis chapter 17 verses 10 through 11. God says this to the people of Israel. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So a couple things. First thing, what we see is that the physical circumcision was instituted by God to be a sign of the covenant between him and the people of Israel. It was something that marked the Israelites as different from other nations. The second thing, though, that we need to understand about circumcision, and we see this both in the Old and in the New Testaments, is that physical circumcision was also to serve as a picture for what God wanted and desired in the hearts, spiritually, of his people. And we see this in several occasions. Uh, one of the prophets in, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, makes mention of this. Moses makes mention of this in Deuteronomy 10:16. He also says in, in chapter 30, verse 6, which I'll read for you, says, and the, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Paul in the New Testament in Romans chapter 2 verse 28 through 29 declares that it is the the circumcision of the heart. It is the cutting off, if you will, of the old sinful man that is opposed to God. And this is only done and performed by the Spirit of God, not the work of man. This is what marks a person as being a part of the people of God. The Israelites looked to their physical circumcision that gave them belonging to God, and and God was saying, that is a picture of what I want in your heart. And so when Paul speaks to the Colossians about being complete in Christ, without the need for additions or improvements, he wants them to know that regardless of whether you have a physical circumcision or not, what matters is that in Christ, you already are circumcised in your heart. Physical circumcision is a violent act. It is a removal of flesh. It's a picture of what God does for us spiritually. No less violent is the removal of our nature that is sinful and opposed to God. And in verse 11 of chapter 2 in Colossians, we are told how that is accomplished. It's accomplished by the circumcision of Christ. In verse 11 it says, and so Christ's death was violent, obviously physically, but even more so spiritually. You think of our sinfulness to God. It is a violent rejection of God, yet in his mercy, God places that violence on Christ, and Christ himself is cut off, circumcised, if you will, from God for us. There's a great passage of scripture that that shares these truths. It's the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53, starting in verse 4. 
I want to read that for us. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The means by which God uses to kill the domination of sin in our lives was to violently crush his son for our violent rejection of him. There is no other way, nothing else will do, nothing else will help, there is no other alternative. Christ alone in his work is what subdues, what kills the flesh, our disposition towards God. It is the work of Jesus alone that enables us to identify with Christ in his death so that we also come to die. Ephesians 2 verse 13 through 14 shares about this as well. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ's death broke down our violent, hostile disposition towards him. Through faith in Christ, we have died with Christ. We have been circumcised. Our heart has been rendered to him, to love him, to follow him, to know who he is. Our dead man has been killed, yet death is not the end for us, just as death was not the end for Christ. Christ was buried but he didn't stay buried. He was resurrected. Colossians 2.12 assures us that by faith in Christ, we too have the hope of being buried. We too have the hope of being raised again, which brings up the second thing we must tackle from verses 11 and 12. We just looked at circumcision. Now we look at a thing called baptism. Paul mentions this word baptism in, in verse 12. And in the New Testament, the word baptize has both a literal meaning, but it also has a figurative meaning. The literal meaning, you probably would know, is to, to dip or to immerse underwater. Um, something we get to celebrate often behind us in the baptismal waters uh, with brothers and sisters of Christ who have given themselves to the Lord. We believe water baptism to be an act of obedience to Christ, but also to be a picture for what God has done for us spiritually. But when we look at verse 12 and the use of this word, the word baptism is used in the figurative sense, which means to be identified with Christ, to be identified with Christ. Paul is not using the literal meaning here because for no amount of water could ever bury a person in Christ or make him alive with Christ more than could physical circumcision done by human hands ensure someone's spot in the kingdom of God. So in other words, Paul is speaking to the fact that in Christ, because of Christ and what he has done for us, 
we are identified with him. Upon turning from sin in repentance and turning to Christ in faith for salvation, we are baptized figuratively. We are identified with him. This identification means that whatever has happened to Christ, therefore has happened to us. With Christ we die, with Christ we are buried, and with Christ we rise again. And so what we must embrace, in summary over verses 11 through 12, what we must embrace is that our being made new, our being made right with God can by no means ever be helped, could ever be improved upon by your work or mine. It is finished. It is complete in Christ. Our hope in him alone is what fixes what we cannot fix, which identifies us completely with him and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So in Christ, the old are made new. We are complete in Christ by Christ alone because the old is made new. Secondly, the dead are made alive. Look at verse 13. The dead are made alive. He says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Again, before Paul begins to specifically address the issues that threaten the Colossians, that seek to take them captive, he wants them to be saturated in who Christ is and what he has done for them in hopes that they would not turn to worthless means of salvation. Paul wants them to be reminded that they have been made alive in Christ. But let's pause for a moment. A phrase I'm sure if you've been in the church long enough you've heard, to be made alive in Christ. Do we understand what that means? To be made alive with Christ. And, and we'll start here, both for us and for the Colossians, there is no way we can know the depths of being made alive with Christ until we can know the depths of what it means to be dead to him. We cannot know what it means to be made alive in Christ until we know who we were when we were dead in our trespasses and sins in Christ. Another passage of scripture that illustrates this well, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through five, up on the screen it says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When we are dead to Christ, when we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, everything God was for, we were against. Everything God was against, we were for. Everything about us was bent in opposition against God. And listen to me, there was nothing, there was absolutely nothing we could do to change this because there was nothing within us that wanted to change. There was nothing we could do to change our deadness to him because there was nothing we wanted to change. We wanted it. We were dead to him. We rejected God. John MacArthur states this about being dead in trespasses. He says, to be spiritually dead means to be devoid of any sense 
unable to respond to spiritual stimuli, just as to be physically dead means to be unable to respond to physical stimuli. It is to be locked in sin's grasp that one is unable to respond to God. The Bible and the spiritual truth make no sense to one in such state. Those who are spiritually dead are dominated by the world, the flesh, and Satan, and possess no spiritual eternal life. For one to be dead in their trespasses, to be dead to Christ, is the epitome of Judges chapter 21 and 25. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Doing what was right in their own eyes is what epitomized those and today, those who are dead to Christ. But in contrasting, for one to be made alive in Christ is the epitome of, of Luke 18, one of my favorite parables of Jesus, when he contrasts the Pharisee with the tax collector. And you understand the, the Pharisee felt like he had much to offer God, as if he was doing God some kind of favor by his actions and his moral behavior. But Jesus compares the Pharisee to the tax collector who was fully aware of his sin and brought him to brokenness and repentance. It says this about the tax collector in verse 13 of chapter 18. It says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Our, our fallen world gives us one example after another, after another, of what it looks like to have no spiritual sense. It's perplexing what wrong things people will deem right and what right things people will deem wrong. It is perplexing. But on a side note, as we consider this, may our response not be of pride and arrogancy as we look down our noses to people we encounter like this, may we first remember that before Christ made us alive to him, we were no different. That we rejected him, that we were opposed to him. May we remember who we were before God made us alive. We did nothing that brought us life. It was God who awakened us to see our sin and to see our need for him. So may we remember who we were, but may we also rejoice by God's grace what he has done in us. And, and may we pray for those who are still dead in their sin. And may we engage them with the truth. Shame on us if we look down our noses upon them because that is who we once were. Not only are the old made new, the dead made alive, but also our debt is canceled. Look at verse, uh, back end of verse 13, moving to verse 14. He says, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Not only have we been made alive uh, to understand Christ and who he is and what he has done for us, but we have also, all of our trans transgressions, our trespasses, our sins, past, present, and future, all of them have been completely forgiven. And, and to further explain this forgiveness, Paul begins to explain about this record, this record of, of debt uh, that testifies about each and every one of our lives. It speaks to every single one of us. And as you can imagine, in 
hopefully are already aware, there is nothing good in each of our records to speak on behalf of our lives. Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12 and following in verse 19 speaks to this. Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In verse 19, he says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. This record that you have and that I have stands against us. We are held accountable before God. We have no excuse. We have no one else to blame. It condemns us. It incriminates us. It is like this IOU of debt that we have that we are obligated to pay to God, but obviously do not have the means by which to pay it. And the penalty for this non-payment is death. It is the record that we owe that speaks about each and every one of us. And Paul shares the wonderful news that in Christ, God cancels the debt. He lays aside these legal demands that condemn and incriminate us. And to be abundantly clear, Paul wants the Colossians to know that that God doesn't merely lose this record of debt in some dark, dusty corner just to forget about it and to put it over off to the side by no means. God is holy and righteous and requires payment on all of these records, and so it was, not by us, but by Christ. Reminds me of, of one of my favorite verses from a song I've grown up singing all my life. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. The debt was nailed with Christ on the cross. And if these things were not enough for us this morning, Paul still gives us more. Look at verse 15. We see that our enemy is disarmed, disgraced, and defeated. He says this, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. If we trek back to verse 10 in chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul tells us that Christ is head over every ruler and authority. And now in verse 15, Paul shows us how God demonstrates that authority. He does so by disarming the rulers and the authorities in opposition. Obviously, this involves the rulers of that day that condemned Christ to death, but even more so, it involves our ultimate enemy who stands against God himself, that being Satan. All along, all along, our enemy thought he was winning by the death of Christ, but it was precisely this death that brought about his own demise. What, what incredible irony. What incredible irony, but even more so, what an, an incredible example of God's authority. When it seemed that God's authority would be thwarted, God is still in charge and God is still in control. Our enemy used men to strip Jesus naked, to count him among the transgressors, to nail him to a cross. But all along, these circumstances, God was using as a means to secure the enemy's defeat. Your enemy and mine was stripped. He was stripped of his power through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And mind you, 
This stripping of power was not a private matter. It was a public one. The enemy was disgraced for all to see, past, present, and future, by the testimony of his saints, by the testimony of his words, of his word. I think, I think of today's culture of sports and how we observe and how we watch these athletes that we adore or look up to, but yet sometimes can be disappointed with. And I think there's still a few of us as we watch sports where we frown upon the winning individual who celebrates just a little bit too much in front of the competition. I mean, I think there are some of us still that, that won a gracious winner. There are some of us that still like the, the celebrations and the, the taunting and whatnot, but there's still a few of us that want gracious winners. And I think something that may be shocking to us is it's not so with our Lord when it comes to his victory over the enemy. He revels in his triumph and he disgraces the enemy publicly. This, this imagery that we see here that Paul is intending for us to see from verse 15 is that of a victorious Roman general who has just returned from war, dragging his conquered captives up and down, up and down the streets of Rome to disgrace them, but also to reassure the people that they are on the winning side. This is the imagery we are supposed to get of our Lord here. The imagery puts God and the enemy in their rightful place. And so the next time you are threatened by the enemy, or you are tempted to fear his slander or his temptation, remember that he has been disarmed. He has been disgraced, and he has been defeated. But even still, we, we are cautious and we are careful because we know our enemy once sought to destroy the Son of God. Certainly, he will try to destroy you. So remember that in Christ you are a target. Remember that you are in a war, but don't forget that you are on the right side. On my office wall, I have uh, the words of Martin Luther hanging in regard to a text in Galatians 1.4 that says, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. And this is what Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, writes about this passage of scripture. He says this, encouraging us to take heed his encouragement. When the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and trying to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary... When you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer on whose shoulders and not mine lie all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner, Martin says, you do not terrify me but comfort me immeasurably. Well done, Martin Luther. What an encouragement that is to my soul to know that the enemy, though he threaten us and seek to destroy us, has already lost. And so remember that he does prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is a deceiver. 
He is a slanderer. No doubt you will be a target, but we need not fear him because in Christ he is powerless. In Christ he's been publicly shamed. In Christ he has already lost. His end is sure. We know that moment by moment we will be targets. We will. We are enduring a war. We will be targeted in hopes that we will not walk in Christ as we received him. We will be targeted in hopes that we will be taken captive with these false ideas and hopes that we will be taken captive by these false ideas about Jesus, that that is the, the, the object of these attacks, that we will be taken captive by these false ideas, and maybe that there are more things to add, maybe there are things that we need to, to embrace to improve upon what Christ has done. But let us fight the good fight of faith. Let us not become weary of hearing and remembering the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for you. In response this morning, have, have you recognized Jesus Christ as superior? And have you submitted to his authority? Are you looking to things outside of Christ for your security in him or to improve your life in him? Are you growing tired of hearing about the work of Jesus? I pray this morning that you will lean upon the spirit-inspired words of Paul in Colossians 2 and remember that in Christ your old nature has been made new. Though you were once dead, you are now alive. Though you were once in debt to him, now that's been canceled. And though you do have a real enemy who can threaten you, but he cannot and he will not overturn what Christ has already done. Uh, This morning, as we continue to respond, uh, the individuals involved in the praise team are going to come back up and we're going to share a a song that I, I think is probably familiar with a lot of us, It Is Well With My Soul. And we're going to sing the truth of those songs that our sin, not in part, but in whole, has been nailed to the cross. And if you want to stand and sing, you stand and sing. If your response is to sit and to hear those words sang over you, then by all means do that. If you want to come to the altar and pray, feel free to do that. But this morning, your response is to hear and to sing the gospel. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Would you join me in a a word of prayer? God, we come to you today and we thank you, Father, for who you are. God, we thank you for your word that it speaks truth to us that it tells us the truth about who we are apart from you, that, that, that our old sinful man has caused us to be disposed to you, to not want you, to reject you, and that you have made us brand new, but that you have also made us alive. God, we thank you for your work that is performed by you, not by our human hands. There is nothing we can do to add And there is nothing we can do to improve the work that you have done. So God, I pray that we will cherish these words of your gospel, that we will sing these words of your gospel today, and that we will leave this place reminding each other of the truth of who you are and what you have done for us. God, we thank you for your word, God. I pray that you would help us to endure in the truth, to know the truth, and to live the truth daily. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.